0: This podcast is supported by Prudential. Remember when no dream was too big and you could fearlessly face the unknown? You still can. When you have a rock you can depend on for your life, you'll be unstoppable. Like the millions of people who rely on Prudential for financial planning and investing. Who's your rock? Talk to your financial advisor or visit Prudential.com.
1: It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Someone who uses passion and perseverance to reach goals has grit, says psychologist Angela Duckworth. To prove the power of grit, Duckworth studied cadets at the Military Academy West Point. She wanted to see if grit predicted whether a new student would drop out or stay enrolled during a high attrition period at the school. She administered her grit scale on the cadet's second day.
2: So the day that you get your haircut, for example, and then we waited to see, you know, who would make it through the highest attrition periods of training, and then who would even graduate with their diploma to serve in the U.S. Army for five years.
1: The analysis showed grit was an incredible predictor of who would make it through the school's challenging times. Ahead, Duckworth explains how grit, not talent, is the secret to success. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is part of the Murdoch Mind, Body, Spirit series from Aspen Community Programs. In her work on grit, Angela Duckworth didn't just study West Point cadets. She looked at teachers working in some of the toughest schools, young finalists competing in a national spelling bee, and high achievers succeeding in a variety of careers. She wrote a book about the insights she learned, In Grit, she talks about how grit is more about consistency, not intensity, and how her childhood influenced her decision to research grit. And today, she also talks about the different forms of perseverance we practice in life, and especially now during the pandemic. Duckworth, who's a MacArthur Fellow and leads the nonprofit Character Lab, speaks with Aspen Institute President and CEO Dan Porterfield. Here's Porterfield.
3: What if we start uh, letting our audience get to know a little bit about you yourself uh, how did you grow up and what led you to gravitate towards psychology and to this you know human human centered research
2: so Dan, I was born in Philadelphia, actually down the street. So I'm in Philadelphia today and I was born in Philadelphia. My parents immigrated from China uh, in their 20s. Uh, and I, you know, third of three children found myself in a family that was quite occupied with achievement. Um, and I think it was my dad. Uh, more than my mom, who every morning and every night, you know, and, and every hour in between, like was just thinking about success and his own kid's success, their lack of success, which one of us was most successful? How do we compare to our cousins in Boston? Not well, by the way. Um, how successful was he as a chemist? Would he win the Nobel Prize? No. Um, and and I think that gave me. Um, Uh, a a personal obsession uh, with, you know, human achievement that took a different turn from my dad's in the following way. You know, my dad really, you know, thought a lot about who was smart, you know, which of his children was the smartest. (laughs) Again, you know, how smart were his kids compared to the Boston cousins and so forth. Um, And I knew when I was a little girl that I wasn't the smartest person in the family. I knew I wasn't even the smartest kid in my homeroom. And I guess I had a sense of statistics where I was like, if I am not the smartest kid in my homeroom, I cannot be the smartest person in the world or even close. And what I came to study as a psychologist is the psychology of effort, um, which is very different from the psychology of like everything comes easily to me um, or the psychology of natural ability. And a lot of what I do, but not all, is on this one um, characteristic that does influence how much cumulative effort people put towards what they do, and that is grit, um, the combination of of passion and perseverance for especially long-term goals. So grit is all about stamina over over months and years, Um, and it's not at all related, it turns out, to talent. So when you measure IQ or physical talent and you measure grit using, for example, questionnaires, uh, the correlation usually is zero
3: so interesting that you found your way into this through the lens of, of sensing what your own assets were in the, in the sort of dynamic of how your family thought about it all?
2: Well, you know, there is this expression in academia that research is usually me-search, and you're either studying <laughs> what you have or you're studying what you don't have, but there, there's some very personal connection. I think that goes you know, beyond academia, so much of, um, you know, what people pursue in their lives um, is very related to their story uh, and, and you know, the idiosyncratic way that their um, story is being told. And then, you know, your work becomes like another chapter in that. But um, for me, it is, it is uh, you know, fairly personal in, in that sense. And, um, you know, I don't think I'm the only person who like looks to their left, looks to the right and realizes like, you know, that, that natural ability is not going to be, you know, what puts you, you know, not just ahead of other people, because that's not really the way I think about it, but just like, t- you know, closer to what you want to do with your life.
3: It, was there in your own life story, in, in your undergraduate years, your graduate school or early work, was there a case when uh, sort of in there where you yourself looking back say that, that this idea of uh, passion plus persistence in pursuit of a long-term goal that that was you.
2: Ah, like, was I gritty? Um, You know, I think I had half of grit um, before I had the other half. And then now that I've been, um, you know, thinking about this um, with a lot of other people, and um, actually I'm a, as you know, a professor. So I get to, um, you know, hang out with, you know, 18 to 22 year olds, I'll say this. I think a lot of people come to it the way I did for me, perseverance came first. You know, I was a hard worker um, growing up. I was a hard worker in high school. I was a hard worker probably to some extent in middle school or even elementary school. Um, You know, I didn't mind showing up early. I didn't mind staying late. Um, I didn't mind, you know, trying hard um, and learning, um, you know, from feedback. Okay, that was a little more challenging, but you know, I, I could do that. The part of grit, which I think is actually more um, elusive uh, for most people, as it was for me, was a sense of what to work hard at, right? So yeah, I've got perseverance, but can somebody please give me a passion? Um, and I had, uh, you know, ten years, Dan, between graduating from college and the epiphany: Hey, I should be a psychologist. And during that decade, you know, there were a lot of uh, tortured, you know, um, you know, sessions with myself, with my journal, with my husband about what to do. So for me, perseverance came more easily um, than passion. And I, I find that again and again with the, with the young people that I talk with, that there are so many people who feel like they have a work ethic, they're reasonably resilient, but they do not have a sense of purpose or direction.
3: So let's look at the elements of the equation, if you will, for a second. So, you know, what what, is, what do you mean by passion? Like having something that motivates you to give your best and do your best and be your best?
2: Well, when I say passion, I mean it in a very particular way for grit anyway. And, and the research that I do, it's really about the consistency of, of the direction you're working in over long periods as opposed to the intensity. And maybe the word passion is is, uh, is something that sounds like intensity. Like, wow, this person like on a scale from zero to 10 really likes this thing at 10. But what I'm talking about is, you know, you talk to someone and they're like, you know what? I'm really interested in veterinary medicine. And you're like, oh, wow, that's great. And you have a conversation with them. And then, you know, six months later they're still interested in veterinary medicine. And a year later, there's a, and then five years later they're still in veterinary medicine. And like 10 years later, they still wanna be a vet, and so that's the consistency of passion, the uh, you know abiding uh, devotion to some purpose um, that that I mean, and I think that uh, intensity is great, but I think actually it's consistency that is you know that rare thing that um, you know Isaac Newton, for example, uh, you know when asked um, and maybe when introspecting as to how he discovered the laws of mechanics that govern um, uh, rigid objects, which, you know, many scientists had wondered, you know, like, how can we understand, you know, like how fast an apple is going to fall from a tree? Or um, and, and Newton observed that many scientists would think about this problem, but after a week, a month, a year, five years, they walked away from that problem, and they worked on another problem, which is you know, perfectly reasonable thing to do because it was a very hard problem, but he never walked away. So, so I think there is this, um, you know, are you willing to just like keep chipping away at something in this devoted, um, loyal sort of sense? And, uh, and that is something that I craved, Dan, uh, but didn't have. Yeah. So I wanted to have something that would, you know, keep me engaged for really the rest of my days, um, but I didn't, um, I didn't know what that would be.
3: Yeah, that's uh, th- thank you. What a beautiful answer. So let's go to the to the uh, um, to the persistence part for a second. And I heard you mention both hard work and resilience. And so I, I suspect both are elements of what you mean by persistence.
2: I think of persistence um, as a little p persistence, and then uppercase p persistence. So it's like lowercase and. And um, let's start with resilience because. Turns out we're in a global pandemic uh, of historic proportions. And so we've all had a little practice, I think, um, whether it was wanted or not in, in resilience. Resilience, when scientists talk about it, it's really the um, ability to overcome adversity. And then scientists will quibble as to whether resilience means, you know, before the adversity, you were here and then adversity happens and then you bounce back just like resilient sounds you know you bounce back to the same level and some scientists would say you know resilience is really bouncing back to some new level that's actually higher, where you're stronger or better, your relationships are more meaningful. Something's better after the adversity. But regardless, that's what adversity is, is a response to challenge, a response to um, you know failure, um, setbacks, uh, and that's why I call it like uppercase P or capital P perseverance because um, it is this kind of like well, in the face of you know real challenge, like how do you do? But then there's lowercase p perseverance, which is what you need every day, no matter whether it's a good day or a bad day, which is to keep chipping away in a hard work um, uh, style that uh, Anders Ericsson, the cognitive psychologist, Kind of better known for the ten thousand hour rule, which happy to talk about. Um, He he called it deliberate practice, but that is the uh, the practice where you are constantly trying to improve at least one thing, and usually just one thing, with you know focus and then with feedback in this you know repetitive way that he found to be true of Olympic champions uh, like those we watched for the last two weeks, uh, but also Nobel laureates or you know Scrabble championship players, chess masters, prima ballerina and on. So I think you need both kinds of perseverance.
3: So a passion plus persistence in the pursuit of goals, especially long-term and meaningful goals, that is grit. And then your research, you've looked at examples of where grit seemed to be the decisive quality that allowed for achievement or success in realizing those goals. And you, you looked at all kinds of endeavors in which grit proved to be decisive. And will you talk about some of those endeavors and, and what you how you uh, sort of proved the power of grit?
2: So the first um, uh, really ambitious field study that I did, uh, I think I was a second year graduate student when um, I thought, you know, I want to study whether grit predicts dropping out or staying in at West Point, um, which is the nation's oldest military academy. And, you know, whether you've been Uh, to the campus of West Point or not, you've probably heard of it. And you might know that, you know, you need top test scores and top grades. So they're very often valedictorians, but you're almost always a a varsity athlete. I mean, very often you're a captain of a varsity sport. Very often you're a captain of three varsity sports while getting top test scores and grades. And then there is the matter of the Presidential, or Vice presidential, presidential, or um, congressional nomination just to apply. So it's a pretty elite group of women and men, and um, yet they have these periods of training, especially the very first summer of training, which is the highest attrition period during your four years. And it occurred to me that after spending what really end-to-end is about two years of an application process, you know, clawing your way into this place to drop out in the first two months uh, might be, um, you know, dropping out too early at least for some, not for all. So I studied that by administering the grit scale in cooperation with the generals at West Point and the superintendent there, to the cadets on the second day that they had arrived. So the day that you get your haircut, for example. And then we waited to see who would make it through the highest attrition periods of training and then who would even graduate with their diploma to serve in the US Army for five years, which is the requirement. And we just did a meta-analysis, which we published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. And it says that grit is a strikingly good predictor, an astonishingly reliable predictor of who will make it through the high attrition periods as well as all four years. And it's not related to West Point's measures of um, intellectual or physical talent. And those measures of talent do predict certain um, long-term outcomes, but they are not a very good predictor of, of sticking it out during the periods of West Point where you know, many of the cadets are, are uh, dropping out.
0: This podcast is supported by Prudential. Remember when anything was possible? When no dream was too big? You could go fast, take big leaps, fearlessly face the unknown. You still can, but you need a rock you can depend on for life. And when you find it, you'll be unstoppable. Like the millions of people who rely on Prudential for financial planning and investing. Who's your rock? Talk to your financial advisor or visit Prudential.com.
3: So I've heard lots of educators in all different levels of work, you know, working together and theorizing, how might we foster grit? What what do you think about that concept of the promotion of, the activation of, the teaching of grit?
2: Well, I've got two daughters, as as you know, Dan, and one is nineteen, and one is eighteen, and um, I I do want them, you know, to be grittier uh, than less gritty. There are other things, by the way, as a mother, uh, that I would like more, you know, that are you know honesty, kindness, empathy, um, uh, and so forth. But do you, do I want them to be gritty? Of course, because I think that knowing what excellence is in your own life is a wonderful thing. You know, we all watch the Olympics, right? Why do we watch the Olympics? It's, it's, I I even cry at the commercials at the Olympics, right? Like, you know, I find it truly inspiring to see what these athletes can do, but I want to go further than that and say that like every young person can achieve excellence. Like anybody can learn to do something. And with that pride of saying like, you know... Yeah, like I I I did that well, Um, and to be on that journey to like, and I think I can do it a little better tomorrow, right? Like I think every young person should and can aspire to that. So I want my daughters to to have that sense of excellence in their own lives as well. I think as a parent, one of the things that I um, see uh, parents do not well that I would like to see um, done differently is, you know, very often parents are very impatient for their kids to you know get on a track. It's like it feels too late if you haven't started baseball by the time you're 14 if you don't know that you're going to be a science major by the time you're 16, there's this kind of premature you know path setting and one of the things that psychologists I think would agree on is that one very important developmental um, condition is um, autonomy. you know kids need to make choices even five-year-olds when my daughters were in kindergarten, and I wanted them to learn to practice, and I wanted them to learn how to, you know, stick with something even when they felt like they wanted to quit. We, uh, you know, said, you know, in the Duckworth family, everybody has to do a hard thing, and that will require you to finish what you start. If you start track, as my daughter did, and you decide after your very first track meet, as Lucy discovered, that she doesn't like competing with other kids. Big discovery, very interesting, very important. But I said, well, you know, it's great that you learned that you only have seven more weeks to go because she signed up for track. And I was not going to let her just say like, oh, okay, I've changed my mind on the on the second day. Even then, here's where respect for autonomy comes in. I didn't choose for her to do track, she chose track. My daughters knew they had to do a hard thing, but I never told them which hard thing. You know, they were five and they were like, I wanna do this, I wanna do that, they have ideas. So I think one of the first things that parents need to remember, but also one of the most enduring things that parents need to remember is that, you know, your kids are individuals. And as Bill Damon at Stanford, um, who runs uh, the Center for Adolescence there, is a very wise thinker on this, uh, nobody has ever become great doing what their parents told them to do. And I would agree entirely.
3: And sometimes people that think that what you're saying is just keep pounding your head, just keep working hard, keep working hard. They miss that other point about the passion, which comes out of autonomy and comes out of a sense of agency. So still, let's, let's just for a moment, imagine we were you know, starting a school together, you and me, and it's going to be called the Penn Aspen Institute School. And we were hoping all the people listening in were going to maybe send their kids here what, what would we do in our school? Say it's a you know, pre sixth grade, some of the things you'd say are good to do in an educational setting that foster that combination of passion and persistence
2: love this thought experiment we should absolutely start a school (laughs) you know here's my you know thought about like what what i see as a through line in healthy thriving really not just healthy development but thriving in young people two things you know one is um i think like all young people need at least one extremely stable unconditional loving relationship in their life i mean It is very hard to develop into a whole person unless you feel like somebody like just loves you no matter what uh, and unconditionally in the sort of center of the universe way. I think for many of us, it's their parents, but I think, or our parents, but I think, um, you know, in some of the people I've studied, it was a high school uh, trigonometry teacher um, in in one case, um, uh, a volleyball coach in another, a pastor. um, uh, It's it's somebody who, who really is there for you. So I think stable human relationships are the foundation for all healthy development. The second thing, is I think kids, especially as they get into their middle and high school years, they do best when they're into something, you know, that there's something that they're into, you know, is it skateboarding? Is it programming? Is it social justice? You know, whatever it is, you know, there's an infinite number of things. But but what I really worry about is the 16-year-old who's not into anything, you know, that there's just like, You know they're just sort of uh incredibly bored um and and disengaged uh in and out of school so what jackie and i were talking about and maybe this would be the premise for a you know a high school if we ever got together and started one which is you know, can we, um, you know, help young people, uh, you know, find something that they can get into. Um, And I've spent a lot of time with admissions officers, including my uh, admissions officer who let me into Harvard in uh, 1988 and uh, Fitz as he's called, uh, would say that it's not that we um, want to make sure that every 16 year old is still doing the same thing when they're 26 and 36 and 46 they're probably going to get into something else, right? You know, they discover something new in the next chapter of their lives. Nevertheless, I think developmentally to get into something, to to know what practice is like, to try things that are hard, to feel what it's like to go deeper. You know, there's so much of this like TikTok video culture where it's like you're just skimming the surface. You watch something for two seconds. But what I'd like to see a young person do is at least in one thing to come back to it and and to come back to it year after year just for – the sake really of experiencing depth of passion. Yeah. Um, so how to do that is another story, but you know we would have a lot of um, late nights together if we ended up doing this.
3: It'd be fantastic. and I've certainly seen exactly what you just said on point two in the college context, uh, where the major, the independent study, uh, the significant campus leadership, the participation on athletics team, and more can provide that kind of a proving ground that you have the stick to itedness to really go deep. So uh, take a minute to, for the audience to maybe address the question of, of growth mindsets, which Carol Dweck uh, has popularized, and it, like grit, you know, now as part of the everyday vernacular of educators and families. Uh, how, does it, how does the notion of a growth mindset connect to the notion of grit?
2: And I'll tell you about what growth mindset, uh, her really revolutionary idea, I think, um, really is. It's a belief. Growth mindset is a belief, a theory that uh, human abilities like intelligence can change that they are fundamentally malleable. That if, for example, I say, Dan, you know, um, help me get smarter um, about you know, politics, help me get smarter about math, that you won't look at me like I'm crazy. You'll think like, oh yeah, let me help you get smarter. You would believe that I could literally be smarter in those things. The opposite is a fixed mindset, which is the deep-down belief that you know, sure, you can learn skills, but you can't really change how smart somebody is at anything. And what Carol has discovered in her in her research, and you know, her students who are now you know all grown up and very eminent themselves, including people like David Yeager, um, is that uh, it is in the face of challenge when growth mindset matters most. I mean, when you're winning everything, it probably doesn't matter all that much which mindset you have. But when you stumble and you fall. And you screw up because of your own uh, mistakes, or adversity happens to you. That a growth mindset gives you a rational reason to get up and to like look back and learn something, and then move forward. Whereas a fixed mindset tends to encourage like hiding behavior, like I just don't want anyone to realize that I'm not as smart as they think, um, and to avoid challenge and risk taking. Yeah. Grit and mindset are uh, growth mindset are positively correlated. And the last thing I'll say on that is um, they are positively correlated over. Time, Dan. So when we follow um, young people longitudinally, for example, uh, adolescents, and you measure growth mindset and grit, growth mindset and grit, what you find is that one leads to the other um, in this kind of virtuous cycle.
3: One thing I've, I've observed is that sometimes educators themselves have a fixed mindset, and so they project to students that they believe their abilities are fixed, which then can reinforce. That belief in students, and I don't know—is that something you've seen, or is that something we have to watch out for?
2: Uh, you've you've put a finger on exactly what I think uh, Carol and many of her collaborators are um, working on right now. You know, having established that uh, these mindsets can very powerfully you know, determine our behavior and our motivation and our success, she now wants to ask, like, well, how would we get kids to have a growth mindset? And for example. I remember when I was in college, so this is now, what, three decades ago, and I was trying to get a, an after-school enrichment program started where we would, like, I don't know, build solar-powered hot dog cookers after school, et cetera, and um, as I was told by the principal, I went, you know, classroom to classroom, knocked on the door, and they gave me, like, you know, two minutes to make my commercial, and I would do my song and dance and say it was going to be really great, and we were going to make a solar-powered hot dog cooker out of tin foil and a cardboard box, and I remember this one teacher, Mr. C, because um, one kid was like, I'll do it, and he he was like oh not you she means the smart ones and I was like yeah. wow you have to be with this person every day I was like so absolutely and I think most teachers get into teaching because they do have a growth mindset and they believe in the potential of children to get smarter and to learn but I do think we have to uh, you know, probably ask ourselves, you know, what unintended messages did we inherit and what unintended messages are we passing along, you know, when we casually say things uh, without really reflecting.
3: So you wrote, you know, you did research for, for a period of time, you wrote a book that has had profound influence. I could talk about how it's influenced people I know. Sometimes individual human students have said, I'm gritty, and they mean that in such a positive way. And sometimes Whole bodies of work, like I think the sort of remaking of the SAT exam that David Coleman led was in part done to emphasize the virtue and value of practice, which you've you know comment on is such an important part of of uh, of a growth of a growth, both a growth mindset I would say, but also grit. But so at the same time that you know you're a dynamic thinker, so you put a big idea in a big book in 2016, and before that in other ways and people give you feedback and you, you know, do more research. So what's evolved for you over the last five years on, in this concept?
2: Um, a few things I've grown a bit and, and and even I'll say changed my mind because I was wrong a little bit. Maybe I shouldn't even qualify, just say wrong um, five years ago. So one of the things that I wrote about in 2016 was that when I look at a really gritty person, right, again, think of your favorite Olympian uh, since the Olympics just, uh, you know, were with us, or think of your favorite whoever um, that you admire that I would say, oh, these people have a goal hierarchy, you know, underlying what they do, they have a top level goal. They have a a compass. They have a reason why they're doing everything. And then that drives a kind of like, you know, pyramid like structure where like then they have mid-level goals, you know, this is why we need to be in 10 years. And then then they have like five-year goals. And then they have these to-do list goals that are at the very bottom. They're like, this is what I got to do this afternoon, this week. And to me, that made a lot of sense. And to some extent, I do think it's true of somebody who in full maturity, you know, has a sense of clarity and purpose, but also like how it connects to their everyday uh, task list. But here's where I think I was wrong. Um, I think that there really are very few people, if any, who really have like a pyramid of goals, you know, written down or not even written down. And here's the reason why. I think we can have a compass of like the kind of thing that you are working on, Dan. I know you do. You have a TLO. I do too, use psychological science to help kids thrive. Like, that's true. So, that's at the top. I absolutely have a to do list. It's very detailed, actually. But if you ask me, um, Angela, what exactly are you going to be working on in five years, right? If you say August, but five years from now, so 2026, what are you going to be working on? And I'm like, I don't know, Dan. Like, I don't know. A lot's going to happen between now and that. So, what I think I was wrong on is, that even though you can have a telos, you know, compass, these are my values and interests, this is what I'm working on. Even though you should have a to do list, and frankly, I think you should have like a one, two, or three year plan. I don't think anybody has much in the middle. So there's this big gaping space, you know, that is not at all like a pyramid. Uh, So I think I was very much incorrect on that. And I say this because I've tried to talk people through their pyramids and help them create pyramids. And um, I've talked to very successful people about their goals. And I think it was Danny Kahneman, um, the Nobel Laureate who said to me recently because I was trying to map out what I was going to do and he just said at some point almost laughing he was like Angela do you really think you're going to know what you're going to be doing in three or four years he said I I don't and I was like hmm good point so anyway that's a that's a big revision Um, the other thing if we if we want to get into it is I think there have been legitimate criticisms of this like you know, character and grit approach from those who feel like it draws attention away from structural changes. You know, race no. and class issues in this country. So we can uh, talk about yeah, say, that. But I think.
3: Yeah, say a word. Say a word about that. That was next uh, to ask you about. <laughs>
2: um, there have been scholars, but also just you know humans, right? Uh, who who just have been thoughtful, and 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 I'm thinking of you know, for example, Bettina Love, who's a uh, a professor of education, um, who you know, who's uh, said, you know, um, I think some of these uh, words that we use, like grit and character can be problematic um, if misunderstood. And also uh, I think, uh, you know, again, I I think these are legitimate perspectives. They can um, make it seem like all you need is like a sense of personal agency, you know, and and nobody needs to make uh, society more fair or equal. Nobody has to take care of like, you know, changing zoning ordinances and uh, public school funding and, you know, other things that are like just objective realities uh, that make it very, very difficult for some people to succeed in our society. And I think that is, uh, you know, a very important voice to be um, amplified. And I would hope that um, anytime I talk about, you know, a kid developing a growth mindset and learning to have a passion and Figuring out how to practice the way experts do, that it would not only um, not take away from a concern for like the contextual supports that a human being would, but also that we would put more money and more attention, more than money. I think about my own daughters. I think they grew up to be pretty gritty people. Um, how did that happen? My um, my husband and I, you know, and and their lives, you know, like they like we. There was so much investment in their context. So context and character ought not be thought of as either or. Uh, I think context and character ought to be thought of as both and.
3: I read a study not too long ago that, that sort of suggested that because of the presence of racism, some very successful Black men and Black women, but it was focused mostly on men, even as they achieve, are also experiencing tremendous daily stress that's unhelpful to their physical health.
2: There are researchers, I'm thinking of, you know, the Northwestern uh, University psychology researchers, uh, Chen and Miller, um, but among others who have said, you know, I think the title of some of their papers, like stress gets under the skin. And in particular, you know, one thing that's really revealing about this research, it's not just that they're like physiological, immunological, cardiovascular, consequences of being chronically stressed. Um, But I think maybe even more relevant to what's going on right now in our country is that being marginalized socially, being marginalized because of your identity um, can be one of the most uh, corrosive psychological experiences that you could have. So yes, it is bad to want for food. Yes, it is bad to be thirsty. But also this less tangible thing of feeling like you don't belong here, you know, feeling like people don't truly respect you. Um, it's a fundamental human need, and there's a tax uh, that yeah. gets paid. So even if you're graduating summa cum laude and your law partner or whatever, that 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 they're measuring a cost to that.
3: So my um, amateur answer to that has been, yeah, as a mentor to you know a number of y- young adults. Um, has been to remind them even as they are striving for success in their goals and aware of uh, the presence of sexism, homophobia, racism, a variety of isms that also there are values to nurture within that uh, are about who they are. It's not directly related to their success at all. It's about what you said earlier, empathy, compassion, a sense of solidarity with others. Is, am I giving good advice when I say that?
2: <laughs> I, I think you're you're giving good advice and I think just that you're there for them, right? You know, I, I think um I, I think you know to feel like as I said in the beginning, like I think every young person to develop well, to flourish needs to feel some unconditional love you know and to just to, to be an unconditional friend you know you know even if that's not your role to be the unconditional parent or yeah. you know, but just to be an, and to um you know, uh, not have that person feel like their worth is a fragile thing, contingent upon, like always imperiled, you know, uh, but but really is just, you know, like the um, uh, little children's book, The Runaway Bunny. And it's like, no matter what the bunny does, like the mom is like, yeah, but then I'm going to love you anyway. And the bunny's yeah. like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to make a sale and I'm going to run away. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, but I'm going to love you anyway. Yeah.
3: yeah. Let me ask you about one more thing, which is I have worked been privileged to work with thousands of students of all different types, and in, especially at that moment of 18 to 22 and then maybe tracking later. And I think of some of the most gritty students I know who are, who are people I admire so much, who had a moment who, whose idea was, yes, I'm passionate about my college education. Yes, I'm passionate for what it means for my community. I'll figure out the exact destiny here, but I'm going for it. And then they have that resilience and that hard work and and something else is needed. And just as the examples in my mind, one is somebody that persisted through a terrible disease in college and needed uh, a psychologist to work with her about slowing down the way she was trying to fight the disease. Or in a second case, uh, a young woman who, was pounding her head against the the wall uh, and needed to realize with some help that it was okay to get help. She'd never gotten help before. And then a third one, a story that can almost make me cry to tell it, a, a young woman who was so passionate about soccer in college and college's success overall, had a knee injury, couldn't play, and was so devastated she couldn't function. It turned out with help from a grief counselor that her father's death seven years before the man that taught her soccer was what came back to her in that moment when she couldn't play soccer and she Mm. she couldn't wear his number out on the field. Mm. So how does that notion of getting this kind of help outside of what you can do for yourself in a way fit with this notion of, of resilience and purposefulness.
2: So I want to tell all the very gritty people listening, and then also all of you who have like especially gritty kids, um, something to watch out for and to take from those three stories. Because Dan, they're all about how this really strong and amazing person at some point has to depend on someone else to get to the next, you know, yeah. chapter to get to get through something. And um, I, I I say this um, in part because um, I think that actually it can be a little bit of the Achilles heel of people who are really gritty and strong and, and like practice longer. Like um, what happens when you fall flat on your face um, and you feel burnt out or exhausted or you're going through episodes of depression or you're injured or whatever it is. Um, and I think it's important to like share that every paragon of grit, even the like super duper famous ones, you know, that you can imagine, at least the ones that I've had an opportunity to study and to interview, like they all have a story like this where, you know, they were humbled at some point in their life and they didn't want to, but they really had to ask for help. Um, and and not in the way they wanted to, it wasn't pretty. It was like ugly crying, you know, it was like mm-hmm. not um, anything that at the moment they even thought was uh, like gonna end well, you know? And um, I think if you could just know that and tell your kids like, hey, I was listening to this talk and this like researcher studies, all these like world-class performers. And did you know that every one of them at some point, maybe it happens when you're 16, maybe it happens when you're, you know, 21, maybe you get all the way to 35 without this happening. But then they really need somebody else in their life. And it's often a loved one in the form of a parent or a spouse, if you're that old. And then I will say for many people, it's a therapist uh, or a a coach in in another way. Um, And I think the lesson from this is that um, if the Achilles heel of a really gritty person is that it's hard to ask for help because you're used to sort of summoning the will to like, you know, keep going on your own, then at least hopefully this conversation and those three stories that you told, Dan, Well, like you'll have a little pattern recognition. You're like, oh, wait, I'm feeling burnt out. or I'm feeling not like myself. Like, like this is the part in the story where I need to ask for help. Like all of the great, great uh, successful people all learn how to do.
3: What what a great uh, interview. Thank you so much, Angela. Uh,
1: Thank you, Dan. uh, Angela Duckworth is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. She's a psychology professor at the University of Pennsylvania and co-hosts the podcast, No Stupid Questions. Dan Porterfield is the president and CEO of the Aspen Institute. Previously, he was president of Franklin and Marshall College. Their conversation was held in early August as part of the Murdoch Mind Body Spirit Series at the Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's conversation was designed by the Aspen Community Programs team, Zoe Brown, Katie Carlson, Crystal Logan, and Jillian Scott. Our show is produced by Marcy Swazo and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.
0: This podcast is supported by Prudential. Remember when no dream was too big and you could fearlessly face the unknown? you still can. When you have a rock you can depend on for your life, you'll be unstoppable, like the millions of people who rely on Prudential for financial planning and investing. Who's your rock? Talk to your financial advisor or visit Prudential.com.